Welcome TTB community. I am Bob Demena, and here with me, as always, is the droll. Droll. <laughs> Shibley. It, it's I feel not, like we've used that one. Have we? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. And it's not really a bad thing. Um, because I have only ever heard droll as a bad thing. <laughs> so curious or unusual in a way that provokes dry amusement. And it's the dry amusement that kind of stuck out <sighs> okay. to me. Because, you know, we, I think, I think you have a sort of dryish type of humor. Would you agree uh, yeah, with that? I do. Right. Yeah. So, so you're droll, um, <laughs> in, a, in a good way. All right. What do we have going on? Who's on today? A Pete, uh, really cool guest. He is, you know, he was on Well Wars. That's when I first discovered him. And we actually had the opportunity to have a conversation with him. So I got a little bit of starstruckness when we started talking to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we did have, and, and please take note, when we did this conversation, Pete is in the middle of a jungle. And so we did have some bugs in the background and some other noises. We tried to cut those out as much as possible. And we did have a bit of a conversation break with Pete. His power cut out halfway through the conversation, so we had to pick it up a week later. Anyway, uh, be mindful of the location. Be mindful of that. And before we get into the actual show with him, just know that Pete is a really cool dude. He is an extreme conservationist. He actually was on break from doing some extreme conservation activities because of a snake bite from one of the most venomous snakes in the world at the time. So he actually had time to talk with us, which was great. And we learned about some of his past endeavors, some of his current endeavors and what he plans to do in the future. So our travel tip of the week, right, Bob? Yes. The travel tip of the week is do not. Hey, I'm doing. Oh, oh, all right. Go, go, go. Do not exchange money in the airport. Mm -hmm. Heard that. (laughs) <laughs> so it's that simple the the rates are always going to be higher in the airport either do it beforehand <laughs> either do it beforehand or find a place afterwards yeah i agree there the rates are always higher there um if you can if you do have to exchange money do as little bit as possible essentially just to get you out of the airport and then find a place a little bodega or whatever to, to actually exchange it at a better rate yep before we get into the conversation, check out some of the cool things we offer. So first is the Traveler's Blueprint Travel Journal and Planner. It's perfect for those of you that like to keep record of everything. It offers tables for budget tracking, mindful travel tips, and details on how you can create your own itinerary layout. This planner can be downloaded through our website immediately upon purchase for you to fill out by hand, or you can fill it out on the computer. And it makes it just super easy to keep track of everything you need to plan the perfect trip from confirmation numbers, general insight on the country you plan on traveling to. And then the back of it is just a bunch of pages for you to actually journal about your experience. So the best thing, you can print it over and over again, and it's on sale now for $7.99. That's it. You buy it once and then you have it for every trip thereafter. Next up, we have the Traveler's Blueprint Video Tutorials, which is a five-part video class presented by an animated version of myself and Bob. The series is perfect to help you fill out the travel planner and journal with information and insight on how you can prepare for navigation, booking airfare, restaurant and blog research, itinerary layout, safety, local norms, and of course, being a thoughtful traveler. And that is available through our website for $25. It is a wonderful platform on Thinkific, and you get to go through all the courses. Yeah, and so and they, they pair up very nicely. So if you do get the journal and then you pair that up with the video course, you'll essentially have everything you need to do this on your own. 
plan your own trip, save a lot of money. Now we take it a step further. And if you actually want to sit down with me one-on-one via Zoom and go over the details of your trip, and I'm talking every aspect of your trip from the dates you want to fly out, how to save money on airfare, how to navigate the city, how to find the best restaurants, everything you could think of. I'll sit down with you and, and be essentially be your travel consultant and help you plan this trip down to every minuscule detail, if that's your thing, of course. So keep that in mind and check out our website for pricing details on that. And as you all know, Bob and I are either Philly local or appreciate Philly from a distance. And we have our very own tour guide, Keschler, who will hook you up with an incredible Philadelphia experience. He offers a variety of tours where you can uncover the little known history of the city or chat down on some food and cheesesteaks tours. Keschler is offering two tours exclusively through the Traveler's Blueprint, and you can find them on our website. However, if you do want something a bit different, feel free to email us and we can look at changing up the itinerary with you. If you find this podcast entertaining, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you love us, or if you love at least one of us, we'd be forever grateful if you could subscribe to the show and share some of our social media posts as a story on Facebook or Instagram. Because remember, we post clips and images of these podcasts to our social media every week, and we encourage you to give us feedback and ask us any questions you may have for that conversation. Lastly, if you want to be on the show, you can join us and drop us a line for the Travel Around Table series. You can send us your name, website, and a few travel-related topics you'd enjoy discussing. Thank you for listening and enjoy this next podcast. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Pete, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Good to be here, guys. Uh, it's good to see. You. It looks like you got a prison behind you, but maybe that's just the house you're staying at in Costa Rica. I'm actually, I'm in a, we've got a resort, gave my crew a free night at this resort, but I was going around trying to find a nice place to film in amongst the jungle, but the light was really hard because it's, it's kind of in the morning with the sun streaming down. So I've ended up giving you a prison view. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, it, it's appropriate. So Bob and I are very excited to talk to you. Uh, I, the first time I actually, heard about you was you know uh probably in early 2010s and when i was watching whale wars and i thought that show was really interesting i loved the discovery channel and whale wars was one of my favorite shows and then when bob and i were talking and he mentioned that we we're getting you on based on our uh connections with some of the other animal poaching and animal conservationists that we've had on the show i was really excited so you've been uh I, on Whale Wars, obviously, you have a company called Earth Race, which is kind of where you first started your endeavor into conservation with biofuels and literally sailing your boat or, uh, I guess, sailing around the world in your biofueled boat. And that set a world record. And then you got into marine conservation. Bob and I have watched your Amazon s- series called The Operatives, and that looks at different conservation efforts throughout different parts of the world from poachers to illegal fishing. And now you're focused on biomass, which is literally, this is from your TED talk, which was phenomenal. And you're looking at the overall use of human biomass and their associated animals, and then how much biomass is actually just wildlife. And we'll, we'll get into that. The numbers are astonishing. And you are to put it into two words, an extreme conservationist. 
A lot <laughs> yeah. of people would probably call you crazy. Uh, others may call you brave, but we're undoubtedly excited to talk to you about everything you've done over the last 15 years. So why don't we get into it and talk about how you started because you've had no background in conservation prior to getting into conservation. Yeah, it's been a, it, it's not a linear journey in, in the conservation. <laughs> and, and, you know, when I, when I left school, I went and studied engineering and science and I worked in the oil industry. Um, and in those days, we're just about making money. But back then, you never even had environmental science at school. And I don't know a single one of my friends from university or from school who in those days would consider anything to do with environment. It's, it's one of the ways that culturally our societies have changed, where the environment is now on people's radar. So when I, when I left school, working in the oil industry, and then towards the end of my time in oil, there was this growing unease about fossil fuels. And in those days, it was just simply about a resource. And there was this gradual transition where I started to do something on solar panels and wind energy or something, I'll read it. And in about 2004 or five it was, I was doing an MBA in Sydney. And to finish the degree, I wrote, wrote a 20,000 word project, Alternative Fuels for Road Transport. And just an easy way for me to finish off the degree, really. Um, <laughs> and and the, through that, through writing that, that paper, I became a convert to biofuels and not as a, as a panacea for transport energy, but as a step in the right direction towards, towards sustainability. And it wasn't really passionate. So I just, just, oh yeah, I'm interested in this. And at the time, no one had heard of biofuels. And then I, I gradually formed this project called Earth Race, where we built this very cool power boat, fueled it on biodiesel made from waste cooking oils and used it to set a record to go around the globe. And once I started down that journey, it's been very hard to, to go back. And there's been a couple of times, in, in fact, over the subsequent years where I had a chance for a complete reset. I go back and do a nine to five and, and work for someone else and sell washing machines or, or do something like that. And both times I've, I've considered it and thought, no, I'm going to continue working on things I believe in in many ways. And when I look at my last, the last 10 to 15 years of my life, the entire time I've worked on things I've believed in. But what I, where my, where I add value has kind of changed. So, you know, there was a setting the record around the globe, became a bit disillusioned with biofuels, like they started using palm oil as the main feedstock and I've got grave reservations about that. And, and so I, my passion for biodiesel sort of waned, but at the same time, I was on a very cool power boat. And, and starting to see destruction in the oceans, there was a few cases where I thought, holy cow, is that even legal? And it turned out it was. Um, so then I had this idea, let, let's use this very cool boat and my crew to go and tackle marine conservation issues. And that led to the relationship with, with Sea Shepherd and going down to Antarctica in 2009, 2010. Um, and, you know, that was where you mentioned before the Go Wow Wars. I'd crack a show and they did an amazing job <laughs> of telling that story. And in many ways, I think, you know, Whale Wars was one of the very first conservation shows that was that in reality. You know, most of them are David Attenborough type things. So here's this amazing wildlife. Whale yeah. Wars had these interesting characters, epic location, good guys, bad guys. It had this recipe for a really good show. And then it had an outstanding production team who, who did such a good job telling that story. And so I, I had, we had a couple of months in Antarctica, so that's interesting that. I called them the naughty Japanese who were chasing them around Antarctica. And we were a bit naughty ourselves. Like a lot of what we did down there under maritime law is illegal. Like we were prop 
throwing them where we would we would get these big ropes of chains and stuff on them and 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 use it to engage your propeller to disable them. Like as, as a mariner now, I'm horrified of seeing them involved in that sort of malarkey. But we we disrupted their operations and and we had because our boat was very fast, not suited to Antarctica because of all the ice, so we had to be pretty careful about them. But we managed to wreak havoc amongst the Japanese, and every day we stopped them from whaling. It was about 10 whale saves, statistically. So we were very focused on, let's disrupt these people as much as we can. Uh, and then an event where my, my life changed, no question on it, was, I think it was January 6, 20, 2010, and we'd, we'd run very low on fuel, and we were two days away from being getting refueled from the Steve Irwin, which was another one of the ships down there. So we basically had to sit there for two days, and I had just enough power to keep the motors going to keep us uh, being able to move into the weather. Um, and the Shonamaru, which is the main boat we had all these, these altercations with, they come sliding up beside us. So we were sitting there. We were idling in gear coming towards Wailing. These guys had come along doing, I think, on the, on the 18 knots they were doing according to the final report. And at the last minute, they turned to starboard. And I remember sitting on the back deck thinking, and we were looking up, we were sort of waving at them and giving them the finger. <laughs> <laughs> and, as the right came, it kind of slid over three ways. We went over one, I thought, man, this is going to be close. And then the second way, I thought, man, this guy's turning. And big ships, what happens is, there's a certain momentum. Once they start turning, it becomes, it starts, uh, and then, whoa, around they go. And so that's what this guy did. He came around at the last minute. My guy who's down in the bridge, he looks out the window and he sees the ship coming down on him. So he, Turns the steering wheel to starboard and tried to accelerate away, but it didn't make any difference. They were doing 80 knots and we were stationary, and I'm with only one engine on. And the, so they basically ran over, ran over my ship. And I was, I was tucked out of the office, made this boat, which has been my life for a long time, and to have yeah. the front of it cut off. And, and then, and then after that, we ended up, I, I got aboard the Bob Barker, and the, the boat was, was abandoned in Antarctica, which kind of broke my heart, really. And I was pretty pissed off about it all. <laughs> And we, we had this idea. One of the challenges for in in whaling was you need to make it a, an issue the public cares about. Like in the end, you know, each day we stopped them whaling, so it's well. But the long goal was to stop Japanese whaling in its entirety. And to do that, you need to get public on board. And there's two public that matter. One is, let's say, America, New Zealand, Australia, countries that may care about it. If enough people care about it, then you can, you can affect something. The second one was public opinion in Japan. The running over of that boat, Number one story in, in many, most countries around the most Western countries around the world. Japan didn't even make TV. It made page four, page five in the, in the, in the uh, local newspapers. Yeah. And, um, oh, I've just got one of my guys coming in behind me. I'm not quite sure what it's it. Nope, it's all good. Up a prisoner, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, so, so the whaling was a non issue in Japan. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how can we make whaling an issue that the public in Japan cares about. And one of my ideas was, I'm going to go back there as a prisoner, and if I can speak eloquently about about the reasons it's offensive to New Zealand and Australia, and just to give you a background, so Japan sneaks past us in the summer, and they whale in Antarctica, which is like our backyard. So my plan was to go there as a prisoner. To do that, I had to board one of their boats. Um, it's a, but it's quite hard. Like, I've got um, nets. I've got anti-boarding spikes, like these big spikes out the side of the ship. Uh, they've got crew standing there with bamboo. They've got um, impulse guns, which shoot pepper spray, but it's like you can cover a tennis court with these things. So they were well oh, defended wow. in the end. Him, the engineer, we decided it's got to be a night mission. We had a jet ski. We had some night vision. And uh, so we put together this plan, and they had one boarding spike missing where they would put a fuel bowser down to refuel between two ships. So one spike missing, 
four metres gap, according to my calculation. Uh, our jet ski was three and a half metres, so we figured we could slide between this in the middle of the night in Antarctic. What could possibly go wrong? Nothing. <laughs> so anyway, Larry and I put this mission together, and we got the, we got the backing of uh, of of the, the the captains of the couple of ships we had there. So we get in this jet ski in the middle of the night and bounce around. It's quite rough. Like Antarctic is always rough. It's very rare you get a flat day. But this is the forecast like this is the best day we're going to anyway, so pull up alongside this thing. He bangs into the side, I clamber up the side, and then the water's basically so the Shonamara is a very rolly boat, very tall, so it rolls like this. I'm standing on the side trying to clamber in and the boat basically comes down and the water comes up to probably almost to my waist and it just sweeps me off. And then, then it's just dead quiet at night. No, you know, no light around him. Oh, holy shit, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> and Larry, too, is credit. He didn't know I was on the boat or not, but he, but I was going to radio him as soon as I got on. He figured out, Pete's probably falling in. <laughs> so he comes backtracking and then suddenly there's this jet ski over the top of it. Clambered back on, had a second go on. I remember thinking, this is really tiring. And I figured I only had two or three attempts in me. Otherwise, I'd just be too, <clears throat> excuse me, too tired. So only a second attempt, pull alongside. Clamber up on the thing, the the ship rolled back again, and as it came out, I only came up probably to about my knees, and I'm on this net sort of clinging back like this, and then the boat rolled back over. I came up, pulled the knife out of my out of my thing, cut a hole in the net, and jumped on. And it was an extraordinary feeling, like I knew we'd made history, I, and I knew I'd be a wow. pain in the ass to the Japanese after that. And it's funny how there's been a few times in in life where you there's that feeling of having done something pretty special, and you know, I, I knew that, that whatever happened in my life would be would be changed forever. And that and, and I was pretty sure that we could make a real contribution to well, trying to stop Japanese whaling. <clears throat> so so you jump on the deck of the boat and now what? <laughs> did you have a plan? Oh, so what I did was I, <laughs> I was a bit nervous about it all. It was that night and I thought if they're gonna do anything stupid, I didn't want to be getting um getting thrown overboard or anything like that at night. So I went and hid on the boat and ended about Three in the morning, I went and snuck through a few sections of the boat. And then they had, they had a shift change happening, so I went back and hid up on the upper deck. I had a knife with me, which I I, I had the knife. I it was a don't, it was a present from my two daughters, and I'd had it for about five or six years. So I hid that in the upper deck, and then right on daybreak, I radioed Sea Shepherd to one of these ships and told them, "Come on out, we'll, you know, it's time to go and present myself to the captain." So, so they come and start filming, and I I go up to the bridge, knock on the knock on the door, and there's this one of the, crew there looks at, looks at me and he quickly goes and locks the door. I'm like, mate, you got 20 doors on the ship that are all open. Like, it's not, you know. So anyway, eventually the captain comes out and, and he, as he, he comes out and he asks what I want, I sort of said, I had a note explaining that I was a captain of the, of the, uh, of Abbey Gill and I was suing him for $3 million for the destruction of my boat because they went down well. Um, but they were stuck with me after that, and uh, it took them a couple of days to decide oh, what wow. to do. They tried, they tried negotiating with the Philippines and also Indonesia to drop me off there. Both countries refused because it was quite a political issue. Um, and then in the end, they took me back to Japan, and and I became as one journalist said to me, "You are the most hated man in Japan right now." Um, but it did get Japan engaged about whaling, and the first time, largely in Japan's history, there was debate: is whaling the right thing for? For people to be doing there, and in the end, the Japan, Japan basically decided yes, but it did start that transition to public opinion gradually moving away from whaling. And in that year, 2010, there was a 30% drop in whale consumption in Japan. It had been dropping steadily, like five to ten percent per year for a long time, but it was a big dropper. And it was the first time 
Japan really understood about it offending people. And you know, the, the few media charges I got on Japan media, I was always very clear in my message. This is offensive to New Zealanders and Australians. You're wailing in our backyard, and that upsets us. And it's and it's it's below Japan. Like Japan is a very law-abiding country, and here they were, you know, using oh, it's research. You know, no one in Japan yeah. even believed it was research, but it, it put that story out there. And um, after that, it took about. So after while I was in prison, New Zealand Australia announced court action against Japan and the International Court of Justice in The Hague, which is sort of like a it's a court <clears throat> that has countries going against each other. And so New Zealand Australia took them to court, won the court case. So Japan lost. They stopped whaling for one year, went back with a much reduced program for another three years, and then stopped all whaling in Antarctica. So I can say that you know my team and and Myself and, and the many other NGOs and people that protested, like we did lead to the stopping of whaling in Antarctica. And in conservation, you've got to celebrate the few victories that come along because they are a hard one. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I was in the Hague when the, when the verdict was handed down. They got something like 11 or 12 judges or probably, I don't know how much it costs to run a court case here, but it's millions and millions. Anyway, I was in, I was in the Hague in the courthouse when they handed down the, the, the verdict, and it was a it was a pretty special day to you know spent given up five years of my life in prison, and another oh sorry five months in prison in Japan, and I gave up basically a year of my life to try and stop Japanese whaling, and super proud of of the part that I that I played in all of that. Absolutely, that's got to feel good. Um, Two thousand nine, the film The Cove. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And that that also is Japanese related. It's a small town. They had a practice of uh, basically wrangling dolphins into this cove and killing them in the night. And a TV crew, much like what you've been doing with the operatives, went in and filmed this whole thing happening. And since that film's released, uh, there has been nothing. There have been no uh, killings or cullings like that in that cove since the movie. So for 12 years now. And Actually, I better, I better just correct you on that. Yeah. So the killing in the cove continues unabated. Oh. Um, the, so the movie, and, and you know, Ricky Barry was the, he was the, he used to be a trainer. He was the trainer of Flipper, that dolphin oh, yeah. TV side. So he was a trainer of Flipper. And then he realized the error in his ways and he became, the greatest campaigner about dolphin captivity or cetacean captivity in the world. And he, okay. he's dedicated the rest of his life to that. And he's getting on now, and I don't know how old he is, but, you know, he's, he must be in his 70s, and he still champions every day trying to stop um, dolphin. He's had some successes lately too, though, in Indonesia. Uh, recently there's a bunch of dolphins that in, in tourist resorts and places where you're going to take selfies and play with them sort of thing. He's got nose in a in a, uh, a pen where they're gradually releasing them back into the wild. But in the cove, in which is Taiji in Japan, they yeah. still go go hunting dolphin in the same way they have for the last 30 years. So, um, and it, that remains a, a festering sore for Japan, and it remains an issue that does galvanize a lot of public opinion in countries like America, Canada, Germany, and, and Australia. Wow. That's, that's still really surprising to me. I thought, so I, when I did some research on it, I thought, but that they had basically stopped. But what in fact happened is that there haven't been people eating the dolphin or school children eating the dolphin, but it's clearly. Yeah. In fact, with the food, I think they still sell it. They, 
they do still sell it because otherwise they would only harvest. They, they're after young dolphin that are easily trained. Yeah. Old old dolphin are not worth it. So if they weren't eating them, they would be letting them go. But they is eating them. And so what happens is the main target is is the baby dolphin. They're not babies, but like maybe a young teenager in human years. And they they put them in the pens and train them. They kill all the rest of the dolphin. And those are used at one stage a couple of years ago. They advertising you know those ad- Advertisements at three in the morning on some shit channel that no one listens to. Infomercials. They saying, you know, dolphin meat is great for you, and it's not that great. Like it's quite toxic. Dolphins have very high because they're an apex predator. They have very high POPs, which are a type of chemical that that are you know cause all sorts of issues in, in humans and animals. Um, and so they they struggle selling it. It was it was forced at one stage in school lunches. Um, yes, and it's a very cheap food now. Wouldn't surprise me if it's used in pet food. Anyone who wants to know, if you go to the Dolphin Project, which is Rico Barry's organisation, they do amazing work on that, and they can certainly give you a good order. But my understanding is they they still eat it, but it's become a very cheap meat. Okay. Um, and what the a similar thing happened with whale. Once once the once the people stopped eating it, and it, it sort of lost its value. It used to be a highly prized product. Now it's kind of, nah, and it's mostly old people that eat it. And I suspect a similar thing has, has happened with dolphin meat. Hmm. Interesting. So something that I want to point out that separates you from the conservationists that we've spoken to in the past is your ability to throw yourself into these dangerous situations, as you just explained. It, 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 you seem to have taken a spin on it where you're actually going after the poachers themselves, the people. You go to the root where I think, Elliot, up to this point, the conservationists that we've spoken with tend to focus on the animals and saving the animal. And something that sort of blows my mind is that you're you're putting yourself into these situations. You're often unarmed. Is that correct? Yeah, it depends on the country. And okay. So, for example, in Costa Rica, where we're operating now, we've got and we're here for the next year. It's legal for us to even even touch a firearm here. And but you know, we we generally these days we're with rangers and they're armed, and we leave that side up to them. And and to be fair, like if you know, I I don't want any of my guys to be involved in shooting anyone, regardless of of what they're up to. Um, and so here when we go on patrols, you know, for example, now we have a canine unit, so we we've got a, a really well trained um, Belgian Malinois dog, which is the same dog the military tend to use. He's a super athletic, really good nose. Hard working. This thing, this thing will run until its paws bleed for you. Um, just an amazing dog. And so we provide tracking services. So for example, um, a poacher in the jungle will, will go and track them or it might be a, a legal gold mining camp. And the dog gives us much greater awareness of these poachers in the jungle, gold miners around the next river bend or whatever. The dog will alert us to that. You can sort of read the dog and he starts to get more excited as you get closer to people. Um, and he gives us still still learning like we haven't had the dog very long um and so it's, a, it's still a learning curve for us and the rangers like the rangers have never run dogs here before and so for us to turn up with his dog unit the rangers are used to being in the front but we need to have the dog in the front getting the the, the scent while it's uncontaminated um and so it's a it's a learning process for us but we provide the su- surveillance we have a another example is a four million dollar military drone sponsored by Schiebel in austria and so myself and one other guy trained as pilots on this five months of training to fly this thing. Um, wow. and so we provide these services and at times we are exposed to, to quite serious. So I've nearly lost count of the number of times I've been shot at. Um, and my guys, you know, the, you know, and for me, it's a nightmare scenario. You bring back one of your guys in a body bag and, and, you know, the, the risks are there. 
Um, and I've had a few close calls. I got knifed in, in Brazil a couple of years ago and, you know, that was a close call. Two guys on me and, and sort of came pretty what close happened? to I, we were, I was down there. We were, we were following the illegal pet trade in the Amazon and basically we stumbled into this. We were, we were all the way up in, in Peru, um, about 400 k's from a town of Quitos, which is the capital of the Amazon in Peru. And so we, we, we were going up the little wee tributaries and we came across this guy who was, he had two dead monkeys on the shore and people going by would see the monkey go in and buy them for five bucks or whatever. So that these were red monkeys are going to eat them. So anyway, we were like, oh shit, you don't see that every day. So we went in and sort of covertly filming this and the guy comes down and his son has got this little pet monkey. And, and so next thing he, he starts trying to sell it to us. So a hundred bucks we could buy it, probably buy it off him for 50, I guess. Um, but anyway, so we, we were sort of tossing it like, do we buy the monkey and support the trade? And, and in the end, I thought, let's see, let's just follow this trail and see where it goes. So we went where this guy was. There was a, a point downstream where there was a couple of service boats that would come up. They would bring up goods and services that people order and it would take some stuff from there, like rice and that back downstream. So we set up an OP or an observation point with some cameras and some, some night vision. So we sat there for a couple of days watching this place. Sure enough, one of these boats turns up and here's this guy turns up in his, in his, his little kayak thing and he hands over this monkey there were some baskets that I think had snakes in it and there was a few other things so this sort of put us on the trail of this illegal pet trade so we we knew where this boat went it went down to Rakenya and from there the stuff got transferred to another boat down to Iquitos the capital of, of Bruce and from there they go in boats all the way to Macapá in Brazil and this oh wow those are long, long way down the Amazon. And Macapá is, we found out, is the capital. If you are exporting stuff out of the Amazon, it goes to Macapá. And from there, these ships taking all over. It's become really hard to, to ship wildlife by plane. You know, the security in their airports, even in dodgy countries, the security in airports is much better now. So much of the stuff is used moved by land. But in somewhere like the Amazon Basin, it's impossible to move long distances by land. So it gets moved by ships. So anyway, I was in Macapá researching this illegal pet trade and I was trying to find a boat to put the port under surveillance and the plan was to go back there at a later date and then suddenly out of out of behind some car the next thing there's a thing comes running at me with this knife and I sort of I just got lucky and managed to grab this hand with the knife and next thing another guy who I didn't know about he comes up behind me puts his hand behind sort of arm around my throat and sort of thrusts up into my ass which kind of forced me back like that and fell on the ground and as I fell on the ground I was when the knife went in and basically between two of my ribs but it was kind of at right angle to the to the ribs like this. I <laughs> found this out later, like, and I knew I was, knew I was wounded. And I was fighting for my life, and in the end, there's this tussle, and the guy keeps trying to grab my backpack, and eventually he gives up, and I'm yelling and there's people around. This is an amazing thing, you know. Macapá is a it's a dodgy city. No one came to help, so you you got this guy lying on the ground, two thugs beating him up, and trying to trying to knife him, trying to slip my throat. At one stage, the guy's on top of me like this, trying to push his knife in. The second guy ran off. And now it's just me and this other guy. And he was, he was quite tall. Like he's probably six, three, but really skinny. I remember thinking, man, I'm stronger than this guy. And I started this little ship around and got my legs around his waist. And then next thing he made this movement to basically get away from me. And I remember talking about if I let go of his hand, you know, what, what's going to happen then? And I, so I'm talking, do I let the guy go or do I keep holding on to him? And, and eventually I made this, just let him go and sort of scrambled away from him and, and he ran off. And, so I'm thinking at this stage it's just a mugging. And then 
we went to the police station, filed the report, went to hospital, got signed up. And the, the doctor, who I, I went back and saw again to thank him about a year later. But anyway, she, she said she could see the mark on the two ribs where the knife had basically wedged <laughs> between the two ribs. So if it was, you know, 90 degrees different, it would be a different story. For sure would have gone into my lungs. And who, who knows? But once you get a punctured lung. So anyway, the police, the police initially they said it's just a mugging. And then we went back to the area with them and they started asking a whole lot of people, did you see this, blah, blah, blah. And one of the ladies said she saw the two men leave in a late model Hilux. Like, and these guys are thugs. These, you know, late model Hilux, these very few of those in, in Makapa and, and Santander where, where it happened. And so then the cops were like, what, what are you doing here? And so I explained to them about what we were doing. And there was, um, they sort of said, you know, like, this has the hallmarks of a, of a hit where they're trying to pretend it's a robbery. Um, but they said, we don't know. And so they, the case remains open, and you know, whether it was a robbery or whether it was something related to me digging about legal pet trade, I'm not sure. Uh, but either way, I, you know, I came, came pretty close to losing my life, and and you know, happy to happy to step away from it. Eh? Well, yeah. we're, we're glad you're still here and able to talk about it. Uh, I think this is interesting to bring up because you are now a face of you know extreme conservation. You're someone who some people might describe as like a vigilante of someone who will go beyond the law to help preserve animal safety, wildlife, where most conservationists will try to do everything with, that they can within the law. And when people are fighting with different sets of rules, it makes it much more difficult. And so you've taken that approach of fighting outside of the boundary of the rules and taking the fight to the illegal miners, the, the poachers, the fishermen. And I think it's interesting, but you have become notorious in most countries now. Like you have a, there's a picture of you when you enter different countries because they're like, watch out for this guy because he's going to try to stop our gold mining. And I think mm. Namibia was the the first episode of your operative series about the baby seal yeah. clubbing. Mm. And you literally had to walk across the border by yourself because you didn't want to draw attention to yourself. Yeah, there was there was sort of the start of the television show, and they, they were crazy days, you know. And I look, I look back kind of fondly on it, but also too the, the sheer mayhem that happened. Amazingly, like when when I was putting that poster together, there's sometimes in my life, like I'm not a religious person, but there are things that have happened in my life that I can't explain. One of them was we we so the plan was to break into this De Beers diamond mine in Namibia where they club seals. So because it's a diamond mine, it's really well protected. So no one had ever been able to get in there to film and expose the seal clubbing that happens inside there. And put in perspective, 100,000 baby seals get clubbed a year in this in, in this, this location. And so anyway, we put together this plan. I'm going to hire six military guys, spec ops guys out of America and, and a couple of SAS guys. We're going to break into a diamond mine and we're going to covertly film the seal clubbing without getting caught by the security guys. So <laughs> I put this mission together. Basically, I figured I needed about 200 grand to run this mission. I, had, I pulled together about a hundred grand from my existing sponsors, donors, and my money, whatever. Put it all in, hundred grand short, and I've I've already started paying the guys. I booked the flights. I've spent a hundred grand already, I'm and short, with and flying out in two days to go through this. And then I got this crazy call from a guy. He said, "I want the movie rights to your book. This is a book about when I was in Antarctica and Japan." So, and I was like, I, I basically fobbed him off and hung up. And then his PA calls me back, and she says, "Look, we're really serious about this. Why don't you come and see us?" So I said, "Look, I'm." Heading out the state shortly, and then I'm off to go, and I need to raise the money, blah, blah. And, she's, and so eventually she convinces me to go and see it. So 
I turn up in LA, they have the stretch limo pick me up in the airport. They take me to Chateau Marmont, which is some famous um, hotel in, in LA. And so, and I'm, I don't think this is going to go anywhere. So I sit down with this guy, and I, I thought it didn't go, wouldn't go anywhere because Whale Wars already told the story. So I thought the movie was a dead end. And so when I said to the guy, I said, look, I don't have long. I've got two sponsor meetings this afternoon. I've only got about half an hour. If you want the movie rights, you can have them. Give me a hundred grand and you can walk away with them. And he's, he, he's like, he said, I don't do checks. Can I transfer it electronically? So I said, uh, sure. <laughs> and after that, my other two sponsor meetings both fell down. And so then we went to Namibia. And uh, it kind of split the team. Like the, the diamond mine, you, you don't you don't mess around with that stuff, eh? Like you you get caught a diamond mine, have the right to shoot you. Yeah, your cameraman left. Up to yeah, up to twenty five years in prison if you get caught in there. Like there's a long history of people being shot or incarcerated for a long time. So anyway, we we we, we get the zodiac and we sneak around the coastline, get dropped off about a kilometre offshore, swimming in this pitch black water. This is one of two places in the world where great white sharks breach. <laughs> It's a seal colony, right? So this is, and so we shitting our pants. We go, we we swim, and then we get caught up in all this camp. Eventually, we get ashore, and we put all our bags in there on the ground, and then I hear this. Oh yeah, the jackals. And we turn around, and he uses one of these jackals. He's got my cameraman's got my cameraman's bag, and the cameraman had some biltong in it, so the jackal will have smelt that the dried meat, right? Dragging away the thing, and my cameraman. Goes to grab it off the dog, and the dog's like, ah, "This animal." <laughs> He's like, "Fuck this man! You, I'm not, I'm not cutting up with this." He said, "Here's, here's a camera. Just film yourself lots, and be really, really great." Um, you know, I'm, I'm going back to the boat. So that, that was in that was in your show, but then yeah, it, we included it I, in the show, I and love- it kind of it became part of the story. And you yeah. can't do that in every episode because otherwise, the camera work is just shit. But right. because it was, you know, one episode where the camera wasn't great and, you know, the, the seal clubbing shot, oh, I'm still trying to focus it. And, and, <laughs> but it, it made, it made for a good story. And, and the fact that, you know, a lot of it, lot, when I watch reality shows, I pick fakes up. Well, you know, so much of the stuff is fake. You know, <laughs> you don't need to fake nothing, mate. <laughs> you do have a cameraman who fears for his life and he packs up his bags. You know, just film yourself, mate. I'm out of here. I, <laughs> I'm I, surprised I, he actually even made it to the shoreline. Yeah, there, I, mate. I, I the lights in his eyes. Like when we were put the thing that he was, he was, he was close to backing out a number of times. And yeah. the other cameraman, they were long gone. Like they were like, we just have enough to do with this. Uh, and so this guy, Alex, and credit to him, like for him to still go in, it did still give us some good footage. And, you know, he did a great job on filming the Zodiac and the, and the Swimmin, but uh, then to have him leave and then Jack and oh, oh, this is just us. <laughs> you know, we start hiking through. And it was one of those missions where, like, I put everything on the line, my own hundred grand, and I managed to get the sell, sell the rights to it, but that's all the money I had. There's nothing else. And we... We on the first day we go to the wrong location. Seal clubbing can happen anywhere along a sort of thirty kilometer coastline. You've got to just be right place, right time. It takes about half an hour for them to club, maybe four or five hundred. Um, so first day wrong place, second day wrong place, third day nearly out of nearly out of water, out of food, and we're going to have to go out that night. The wind got really high, so we couldn't get extracted by zodiacs. And now we've got like a twenty kilometer hike to get out of this place. And the stakes are starting to get quite high. Anyway, so we went and picked a spot. They went elsewhere, about four or five k's up straight up up the coast from where we were. So we're thinking we've we've failed. And I had Jack, who was he was providing top cover for me, so he had some binoculars, keep an eye out. And he said, "Hey, hang on, bro, they're coming back." 
And the next thing, this vehicle comes in, and they stopped at you know a couple hundred meters. And Jack sort of guided me to a location where he thought I'd be able to get a view of them. And I'm in this really suit, like a sniper suit, <laughs> crawling <laughs> there on the rock. And I was pretty close to these guys in the end. Tens of feet, maybe 150 feet or something like that, shitting my pants. Like a lot of people say, "Oh, people, you and you're brave." I'm <laughs> fucking brave, mate. Like I'm shitting my pants. Anyway. So I get this camera there and trying to focus it, and they'd already they'd already killed quite a few by the time I'm, I'm sort of sitting up there. And then suddenly this whole picture came in a view of these guys, and one of the most barbaric things I've ever witnessed. And and sat there watching these guys. They they herded maybe a couple hundred up into a mob, and they had they'd put little wee rocks previously around in a little corral, and these seals, you know, they're they're useless on land. They like, and they would put about twenty or thirty down at a time, and these guys would run around and club them to death. And I'm you know. Yeah, streaming down my eyes. Like if you love wildlife and be sitting here witnessing that and you wanna you wanna go running out and, and you know shoot them or, or whatever, but you know, like it's not an option. Yeah. That was um, disturbing. So it was sat- that that was hard to watch. It was oh. um it was really it was tough. Like they they turned it into a game, it looked like some of them, or they enjoyed yeah, it too. Yeah. It was yeah, it was there's a, there's a disgusting. Suit. Certain callousness about people who can who can actually do that, yeah. and yeah. maybe they get desensitised with it over time. And but yeah, one of the hardest things I've ever witnessed. Day eh? and and you know after that, then Jack came down and and it was a you know we were holy shit. You know I mean we in many ways the mission was kind of accomplished. We got the footage and we had a long hike. I tell you something funny on the hike out. So so Jack's a former paratrooper, pretty pretty tough guy. And we went we went up to this area and we recovered. A few sort of rocks from the area, just just as sort of mementos. Then I got one quite big rock like this, and I stuffed my rocks in Jack's pack. Right, so we have the twenty k hike to get out of there. And, <laughs> and poor old Jack's like, "Gee, my feet are quite sore." And uh, so he's getting slower and slower as we get out. I think, "Oh, do I take the rocks out of his bag?" Or anyway, I didn't. We we get out. We go to the safe house in uh, in Luderitz, and we were there for one night before leaving. Anyway, the two of us went and jumped in the spa pool. We're sitting there. He took his boots off. Holy shit! His feet were just mangled. His feet. There was barely any skin left. And, it, and, then, and then, of course, he opens up his pack. He's like, "You bastard! Put rocks in my pack." <laughs> anyway, that was about the only. That was the only high point out of that. We uh, and we, it made it. It made for uh, you know one of the. I've probably got two episodes of television. I'm super proud of. There's that one, and there's the dolphin rescue one. And, and great stories, but the seal clubbing, careful how much of the seal clubbing you show, like in the end, it's this journey of how do two guys break into an active diamond mine and film something really horrific. Um, yeah. And we tried to, you know, we tried to minimize the amount of seal clubbing because it is such an ugly thing to witness. And you, you run the risk in conservation if you, you know, if you, if you, if all it is is doom and gloom, people don't watch it. And so there had to be enough of an arc and enough, enough sort of storyline in there. To keep people to the end, and then you know you've watched Jack and Pete get in this diamond line. You're engaged enough in many cases that you will sit and watch it, and like, oh, it's just you know, like that is wrong. Very few people can watch that video sequence and conclude seal clubbing is okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, and didn't you use that that footage to push Nam- Namibia to not do that anymore, and they declined? Is yeah, we tried. We've tried various things, and the and the footage has been you know we've given it away to free to another number of NGOs who run their own campaigns and we I met with the Minister of Fisheries once a guy yourself um, and you know he's, I'm pretty sure he's corrupt um, and you know, it's, it's not huge money like yeah maybe, that's what I don't understand about it it's it's a million, fraction a million dollars a year compared it's a to fraction of their tourism, tourism. Is worth a billion and 
so we and I've you know I've protested outside the Namibian embassy a few times and 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 we you know the episode did put money there was a um, at the time our US network was uh, was they had an online thing called Take Part so it was a pivot which was a um, subset of participant media and they ran an online thing I think we ended up with a petition with might have been four hundred thousand signatures a lot and so we went yeah. and presented that to the on the steps of Parliament and you know so but. Sometimes you've got to protect your battles, and, and I sort of took that as far as I could. And there's plenty of other NGOs who work on it now. And, you know, my specialty is not not so much, you know, petitions and stuff like that. Right. We use the television show to try and push it. Um, but there's other people working on it now, and I'm sort of, you know, busy working on other things. It's one of the challenging things with conservation is you're like a you're like a lion. There's a paddock full of zebra there. Which zebra are you going to go for? You know, yeah. and, and you know, if you miss a zebra, do you go and grab another? You keep chasing it, you know, to pick right. the wounded one or to go after that really big healthy one, which is a better target. And conservation is generally sort of faced. Or certainly someone like myself who, you know, I'm not opposed to tackling new new subjects. If I see something where I think my team can come in and add a lot of value, I'm not afraid to go and have a crack at it. But it does mean sometimes I move on from things like whaling. Japan still whales in its own waters. Iceland, Norway, Denmark, Faroes, they still whale. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've sort of found, you know, other things to, to keep myself busy. Yeah, Just going back to your point earlier about doing illegal stuff. So I, I try and steer clear of that in recent times. Like I've got this company has given me this $4 million UAV and they've trained me and my pilot. And if I do a whole lot of illegal stuff, sooner or later it's going to get confiscated and I'm going to have a couple of pretty pissed off sponsors. So most of the time these days I, I operate within the law. Okay. Certain ones like the seal clubbing, it is illegal what we did, no question. Um, same with there was a, it was a dolphin that we, we rescued. It was, it was being held, technically it was illegal to be held. It was at an island resort in Indonesia, like a tourist resort. And you could pay your 10 bucks to go and pat the dolphin. The dolphin was miserable and this tiny little pool had a, had a stuffed nose from hitting the side. So we, we went and broke into this thing in the middle of the night and we had stole their dolphin, put it in this boat, took it about 50 k's offshore. To this, to this, um, we had a little island with a lagoon and we built a little sea pen thing. So we rehabilitated this dolphin and released it back in the wild. Technically, it was illegal for us to break into this place and steal their dolphin, even though the dolphin was being held illegally. Um, but you know, the point I make is I, I treat a fine line on illegal and illegal stuff. And if I keep doing illegal stuff, sooner or later I'm going to get locked, rolled up and end up doing some serious time. Uh, and I've, look, I've done five months prison. I'm, that's enough. I'm okay with that. So anyway, these days I tend to try and work down, down the middle. And in and, and many ways, you know, conservation is, is an environmental, um, activism. There's various mechanisms that, that end up leading to positive change or, or positive outcomes. And at the moment, the best way for me to achieve that is to work with the government authorities here who are under resourced, you know, don't have a lot of money don't have a lot of expertise in some areas that, that my team can help with. And so at the moment, I'm very focused. I've got a 45-meter ship. I've got a Zodiac. I've got a rib. I've got this $4 million giant. I've got a, I've got a tracking dog that is coming along nicely. I've got a lot of stuff to go off in Costa Rica. If I head off and start doing vigilante stuff, they'll probably just freak me out. I don't want that. Right. Yeah. I, I, I do, Elliot, unless I was going to ask him to get into what he has going on right now, where he is. Did you have, did you want to? I- I did want to ask, we talked about a lot of the, some of the illegal stuff and the, the walk in the fine line uh, in terms of what you do, but then most of your focus has been on illegal poaching, illegal hunting, a lot of illegal activity associated with wildlife and conservation. But there's a lot of legal stuff that is done 
that is extremely harmful to the environment as well. Um, do you plan on taking action on that or are lawmakers better suited to kind of head that front? Yeah, often the, the way, the best way for this to work is that often it's the activist job to make a government aware of it. And for that, often they need things like, like petitions, things like lobbying the government minister. I've done my fair share of, you know, meeting government ministers. It's not easy to meet. If you really want to go meet, and, you know, having a, having a prison record out, so there's not, having a TV show that I've done sort of, so if I need to meet a minister, they will normally grant me half an hour of their time. And you go in and, and, you know, if you bang that door loud enough and you get in there and you, and you bitch away at them loud enough, they will listen to you. Doesn't mean they'll, they'll change your policy, but at the same time, if you've got media, so you've got a new, local newspaper running a story about, you know, hey, should we really be digging all the sand out of this beach or, or should we really be allowing a gold mine in what is a national park or, or these kind of things. So, so there's various mechanisms will push the government to, to go making a change. Uh, and public opinion locally has, has a role to play, public opinion internationally. A lot of people think that, you know, they sign some petition saying, you know, let's stop the harvesting of, of this type of seashell in, in this, in this area. People internationally, those numbers do matter. You get half a million or a million people signing a petition, and that gets presented in a in a parliament. People are like, oh shit, half a people, half a million people signed this, and and so the, so we as activists have a role to play in terms of making the government aware through media, through television, through radio, podcasts. All of these things do play a role, and and the goal in the long term is to get the government to change the law, and then the government becomes the enforcer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the one of the reasons I've chosen Costa Rica to work in. Like their government here is really proactive. It is illegal for you to hunt any land animal in Costa Rica. Anything, any kind of bird, snake, reptile, mammal, peccary, all of these things that historically Costa Ricans have hunted for food, it is illegal now to hunt any of them. And so wow. this is a very easy place for us to operate because the laws are in place. We don't need to go bitching at a government getting them to change the law. But where they lack here is the enforcement side. Mm. And so they created all these great laws. But the rangers are, you know, not equipped as you, you generally, if you're going out chasing armed gold miners or armed wildlife poachers, you better be well armed. And, and often here the guys are not that well armed, lacking in things like body armor sometimes, lacking in training, weapons training, for example. Um, really they do need a, they do, they could do with half a dozen K9 units here. So we've bought the first one and the hope is that after a year or two of good results, I'll look at it and say, oh, you know, wow, they, you know, these, these guys have managed to catch this many people that we may not have caught otherwise. Maybe we should start investing in, in dog sort of things. So, so at the moment, you know, I'm pretty focused on, on working in Costa Rica for a year and, and trying to work within the laws I've created. They don't need to enact new laws here, but when I look around here, you go to Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, um, down to Venezuela, these places are all extremely lacking in conservation laws. And there's plenty of NGOs are working in those places doing the things I mentioned before, trying to get the government to change the law. And once the law is, is, is enacted, then it's a case of how do we enforce this law and stop people hunting this wildlife or, or mining illegally or whatever it is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hey, let's stay let's stay with Costa Rica. You're there right now. If you're listening to this, the the sound you're hearing in the background is the Costa Rican jungle and all the, the thriving uh, biodiversity uh, for the insects there. So uh, I know that when we first started talking to you you said you were recovering from a snake bite yeah that was a, <laughs> it was on boxing days and there was an area on so there's a national park here called pedras blancas which has a lot of a snake called the, the local name is tercia the the 
English name is a, a federal lance snake. Yeah. It is the most deadly of the pit viper species, and it kills more people in Central and South America than any other snake. Anyway, where's, where's patrolling in this area? So it was an area where the the rangers and us were going to start doing some patrols in there. So I thought I'd, we were just up there doing a little recon mission just to see how much sign is there. Are there dogs operating? It's a lot of the wildlife poaching here, they use dogs. That's often a sign where there's, the wildlife is under pressure. Initially, if you go on a piece of national park, you take a gun, mate. You go and shoot where you want. And then in time, as the wildlife gets smart and the wildlife numbers diminish, you need to start using dogs to get, especially the bigger things like pickery and deer. So anyway, I was just up there looking for sign of dogs that were operating there, looking for sign of people with any gold mining. So it was just a kind of relaxed, relaxed day, really. And uh, I can't remember the time, like maybe midday or something rather. Anyways, we were stepping. We Often you find in the jungle here on... The easy way to walk is generally up a creek bed or a river bed, stream bed, or you go on the on the tops of ridges up hills. The, the side bits are, are often very hard and inhospitable to get through, too much sort of rubbish and stuff, unless there's like a really good game trail. So we'd been working up this creek bed, and I was sidling around the side to try and get my team onto this ridge line, and we were pretty close to the top where we were going to work our way back down this way. And as we were crossing over the side, I mean, we just felt this, this like bang in the back of my back of my car. And it was it – was, like, like it was, I thought someone had whacked me with a bat or something. Like, it was really hurt. And then I sort of turned around, and as I'm sort of turning around, this thing, there's a snake. And I look down, and here's this, this, this big Tercia just sort of backing up with a, with a sort of head like this, ready to have another go. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I knew straight away it was a Tercia Palo. Like, I've seen enough of these to, to know them. Uh. And, and I thought I was a dead man, honestly. There's, there's, a, there's a guy died here a couple of years ago, dead in 10 minutes. This this part is luck of the draw. Some old snakes, they won't even inject the poison in you. Uh, They they get very clever and they realize their bite is enough to, you know, send anything on its way. Um, And how much venom goes in you, where it is, if if it's close to a major vein or artery, then it gets through your system very quickly. Um, Or if it's just in the muscle, then it gradually starts moving. And I remember, and so it's a long way from getting out. Like, like I remember looking at this, if we carried on around the ridge line, if I was carried, we could have done that. It probably would have taken us six hours or something. The other option was we go back down. There was another creek bed, which is very steep. And I remember thinking, like, for me to get out of here as quickly as possible, we need to go down this thing, knowing that there would be some rock faces and cliff faces and stuff to go down. And so and so anyway, my, my um, Elbrome engineer, he put, puts me over his shoulder and starts talking to him. He's stumbling around, and my leg is throbbing, and it keeps every now every now and then it would bang on a tree, or we're having to work through vines, yeah. and, and so my leg is starting out, and, so ve- and I was, it was using up all my energy, just hanging on to it. They're like, man, this ain't working, like, hang on, put me down. So you know, I thought, I'm going to try crawling out here. So I tried on my belly, and and my leg just sort of sat down on the ground, every little bump hurts, and then I tried sitting on my ass, and just sort of going forward like this and I could hold my leg up easy enough and I'd use my second leg just to lift up so like the sort of step like this working my way down the creek bed and, and the, the every time we came to like a rock face or something was kind of a blessing and that we could we had to get down to the bottom to the flat area where we could we could hike out easy and uh, somebody I'm going down these these faces and sliding and slipping and I got two of my crew with me I got a third one who's gone down to try and get the coast guard to come into the rescue point for us and, I, and so at the start, I feel a movement of this poison starting to work up my leg. So now I'm doing the worst thing you can do when you've got a snake bite. I'm burning energy, 
and I'm and I'm the blood is flying around. I'm yeah. moving the explosion around my body, and I feel it and, and the throbbing working its way up. And once it kind of got to my to my groin area, my heart started going. My heart would go bah, 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 really really fast, and then it would slow down. So I've got this heart palpitations going on, and that lasted for about half an hour. And then I just started getting tired. And I remember I'd maybe crawl, maybe. 30, 40, 50 meters, and then I sort of like, I just need a little rest. And I end up, so I'm just, just starting to burn out. And my guys are like, come on, Pete, we've got to go, we've got to go. I sort of like, oh, buddy, yeah. carry on a little bit. And eventually we got down the bottom, and uh, two Coast Guard guys here, they put one and put me on his shoulders, carried me maybe 100 meters. Alvaro carried me, engineer carried me a bit, another guy carried me, <laughs> put me down on the pebbles on this little beach, and I knew I just crawled up in a ball, and I, I I thought my number was up. I thought, you know, hospital's still a you know, long boat ride away. And then after that, I don't remember so much from on the rest of that day. I do remember them putting me in the Coast Guard boat, and I was really cold, freezing cold. And I remember sort of saying, close the hatch on me, close the hatch on me. And then I, I do remember in the hospital when they when they transferred me onto the thing. And then when I got to the hospital, I do remember them cutting clothes off. And then the next like, three or four days, almost nothing. And this was um, like two weeks ago. Right? Like when uh, was this? It'll be four weeks ago now. So four it was on Boxing Day, yeah. Yeah, so maybe five weeks now, yeah. Wow. And um, and then I, I I sort of started coming around after about – so my leg just blew up like this. I think I might have sent you guys a photo of it. So I've got one leg that's normal. The other leg is like this. And if your leg gets too big, you run the risk of losing the entire leg. So what they do is they they basically they cut these slots all the way down your leg to relieve the pressure. Uh-huh. So I – and so what the doctors are, so they're putting the anti-venom in me, right? So the first thing they do, as soon as you get in the hospital, they do the anti-venom uh, allergy test to see whether you're allergic to I've had guys take photos of the snakes to confirm it's a tissue palo. So next thing they start putting in uh, this anti-venom. And the guy, so they, they put in a certain amount, and then they start watching what happens because the anti-venom itself is a toxic chemical, and you want to have a minimum amount of that, but that deals to the venom. So they put in a certain amount, and they start monitoring it. And this doctor explained to me later, he said, we just keep going and going. In the end, they put in, I think, 15 or 16 amputees. He said, it's the most he's ever seen going any patient that he's had through there. And so, so while this is happening, my leg is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So I wake up, and I'm still on morphine. Oh, you know, I have to take some selfies, get a couple of nurses, <laughs> I have to have a selfie kind of thing. And I'm, I'm oblivious to how bad my leg is. And then they explained to me, one of them said, oh, we're going to transfer you to Sui Dadnelli where they have surgeons who can cut your leg open. Well, what does my leg need to be cut up? It looks, it looks all right. Like, I don't quite grasp how bad my situation's become. And then they took me off the morphine and they put me onto a, a sedative that was not so relaxing. Next day, I was horrified. Mate. Look at my leg. Holy shit. How did this happen? And got a centimetre away from them transferring me and having the leg cut open. And if the leg cut, gets cut open, then you, you've got a good chance of, of having serious long-term issues and, and rehabilitation. Um, and then I had problems with my bladder. My, my bladder got defense. I'm on a catheter while this happened. They, re- they removed the catheter. I'm still highly sedated. I don't know my, that my bladder's blowing up and I'm not pissing and, and then my bladder gets full stretch and then they put the catheter back in and it just became, it became a bit of a circus in the end. <laughs> so yeah. they, let me, they let me go back out. So I, I, I'm with this catheter. I just sort of hobble out of the hospital. So I've been basically two weeks there work, walking, and I've still got this massive leg. Hobble out of the hospital. I could sort of walk, but, but it hurt. And I've got this catheter. And a couple of days later, they, 
Catherine a block. So I'm, I'm going to the toilet. There's piss going everywhere, mate. None of it comes out. Oh my god, this is like a this is like a black comedy. This gets worse and worse. I went back to the hospital, and they removed the thing. And thankfully, after that, I managed to start pissing normally again. And so after that, it's been a it's a slow road to recovery at the moment, where I'm, I'm just gradually getting the my strength back. I've got a hole in the side of my leg, so so I can cycle okay. I can row okay. I've got a C2 rower that I row on a couple of times a week. I can walk okay, but running. I went for a run it was now four days ago, and then my knee just went. I know that you have, and I mean all of your other endeavors that you've done with the operatives and your conservation activities. You have children. How do they take all of this activity, knowing that you are? in this line that could potentially get you hurt, especially with this snake bite being a good example. Yeah. When, when, when my girls were younger, I think they sort of took it for granted. Like dad's away for considerable periods of time. Uh, and the first few missions that I did that were reasonably risky, uh, they weren't really privy to it. Like for example, when we broke into the diamond mine in Namibia, <laughs> my girls sort of had just dads off in Namibia kind of doing something. Um, and I think the first real wake up over there, um, when we were filming the operatives in Costa Rica, there was a, there was a gunfight that ended up in, the, in one of the episodes of the television show. And I remember sitting down with my, with my two girls and one of them was sort of like, Dad, you can't do this. Like, like you're going to be gone one day. Um, and, it, you know, it's sort of maybe a little bit of a wake up call for me, but um, and then after that, I, I think there's been a number of times that we have sort of had a close call. You know, one was, a, um, we were, we were testing out these rebreathers offshore here and we were trying to figure out how far we could get on one of these, a DPV, it's like a little torpedo or a um, diver propulsion vessel. And this was like a special military one that supposedly had a range of about 15 kilometers. Uh, and, and basically I went underwater, went in a particular direction and, the, the boat thought I'd gone in a slightly different direction. And basically they couldn't find me. And I came back up and had a, had a very long swim back to the island. Um, and there's, in the end, the boat was looking for me right through to about midnight was, was when they finally figured out that I'd actually gone to the island and managed to get a radio call out. Wow. There's been a number of those instances. And I think my girls, they kind of accept it now. There was a, my daughter wrote this article, in fact, just a few weeks ago, after the snake bite, and, and the headline is something like what it's like having an extreme conservationist dad. And it was quite touching, actually, and she said, you know, she basically said that I'm lucky because I get to pursue my dreams and I get to follow the things I believe in. And, and I honestly believe the world is a fractionally better place with, with the work that I do. And my daughter explained that how blessed I am to be able to do that. But the downside is that I'm anom an anomaly in terms of a father. And she, she recited this thing where as a kid, when I got out of prison, some of the kids gave her a bit of stick about her dad. Look, I don't have a car. And when I'm in New Zealand, I just hitchhike around. Um, and I don't have a house. I just stay at friends' places on their, on their couches and that. And she, she took a bit of stick from, one of, from some of the, maybe not friends, but kids at school, giving a stick about her dad being in Japanese prison and then not having a car and basically being a bum. And at the time it hurt her and, she, and 
now she looks back on that and she realizes that that I contribute in different ways and that I don't have a house or a car and I don't subscribe to sort of traditional ownership of things, but that there's still real value in what I do. And I, I've sort of taken a different path to what your average consumer person might take. And she accepts that and she says, all power to me for, for being in that space. And in some ways, she's kind of pursuing her own journey, not along the standard route as well. Um, and, you know, it was, it was quite touching for me to read those words and to realise, like, Danny did pay a price for the, for the things that I do in terms of dad not being home, dad being this anomaly father who's not there every night for his daughters, who doesn't even have a car, doesn't have a house, and, and doesn't have the normal things that a father might have. Um, but there's, there's advantages with what I do as well. And as, a, as an example, you know, many times on campaign, I've managed to get my daughters over for a couple of weeks or up to a month. You know, I had them for a month in the Philippines and took them out and we went swimming with whale sharks and all sorts of cool stuff. So it's a double-edged, double-edged sword. There's, you know, it cuts both ways. There's good sides and bad sides to it. But um, I, I think overall my daughters support what I do. They do worry about me. And, you know, the snake bite, you know, Danny said there was this sinking feeling about here we go again gets the phone call from my ops manager in New Zealand and, and oh my God, you know, you know, dad's done it again, you know, snake bite this time, you know, the most venomous pit viper in the world and, and dad's managed to, to get it bitten by one of them. So it, it cuts both ways. But overall, my, my daughter's enormously supportive of what I do and, and, you know, extremely grateful for it. Yeah, it's a it's this beautiful, um, I don't know, is paradox the right word, where, and, and this was the, the general... Uh, basis for your TED talk, right? It's pursuing something that you love and that you're genuinely passionate yeah. about, and you touched up on this this experience. And it's this it's this it's hard for me to describe. It's almost inexplicable where you have this this passion that's eating at you that you have to fulfill. And meanwhile, you have people you care about. It's, it, it reminds me of like a, a firefighter running into a burning building to save somebody while his family's asleep. And in those moments, that that urge, that need to help people is so significant uh, for that firefighter, whether it's a police officer, a military. It, there's all these different occupations and passions out there that people yeah, yeah. have. And it it's odd. It, it, the passion is so strong that you you are willing to sacrifice your life for it. Um I don't know. I, 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 yeah, I, look, I, I'm, I don't want to sacrifice my life. Just so <laughs> but you are, it. right? But you are. You are. Yeah, look, um, I, I, at times my life is on the, on the line. But you raise a good point about, you know, firefighters. And, um, you know, there's plenty of occupations where you do get exposed to significant risk. Um, and and mine, is, mine is one of them. But, you know, I do try and manage those risks as best I can. But, you know, there's a, this, this idea of, of working on something you believe in. And it's a very strong driver for a number of people, but you know, it's not an easy space to get into. And I think most of us get sold the story of, you know, you, you have a couple of kids, you buy a house, you buy a car, and then you get a bigger house. And you know, so many people are on that, on that sort of treadmill of life. To step off that treadmill is very hard. And you know, a number of people, you know, there's tons of people manage to do it, but it's not easy to cut that umbilical to that, that monthly income check coming into your bank account. It's very hard to do that. And some people manage to actually continue doing that. You know, if they get a job with an organization they believe in, like, you know, and a firefighter is a good example. So nurses and doctors, you know, those people, you know, they genuinely do save lives at times. 
and and those those can be extremely rewarding careers when you get to to, to save a person who's on your operating table in front of you, you manage to do an amazing job and save them. You know, on the other side of it, you, you do a shitty job and someone dies. You know, in my case, I do a shitty job and no wildlife gets saved or worst case wildlife gets lost sort of thing. Uh, and, and so those those jobs, the people who get to follow their dreams like that are very blessed. Yeah. Can we talk about what projects you have in the works now and why you're in Costa Rica currently? So we we signed an agreement with the Costa Rican government about six months ago. So we, we came here sort of at the start of Corona, and we, we did a couple of missions with the rangers. We did, did one targeting illegal gold miners. We had about 25 rangers on our ship, and uh, we, you know, we used the ship as a base of operations. We would insert ranger teams into the jungle. Some of us joined those teams, and then we delivered some, some prisoners that we, there were some people caught illegally mining delivered them into, into Punta Jimenez and Golfito. Um, and then the corona came down, and then suddenly this, this, we're no longer allowed any groups. So, of course, the ships, we're not allowed to take rangers on the ship. So, a period of time, we were kind of at a loose end in Costa Rica, and we were just refitting the ship and getting it getting it sort of straight. Now that corona's over, we're, we're back running operations. And so what we're doing here, we sort of split it between marine and terrestrial. So we have a, on the marine side, we have a, a four million dollar military UAV that was sponsored by Shebel, yeah. uh, and this is a, it's a formidable surveillance asset. Just the just the camera on it's a tracker system which has a very powerful thermal imager. It's got a daylight imager and a low light imager, um, and so we can we can fly this several hundred kilometres from the ship and have live video coming back to the ship. So it's it's great for checking out marine protected areas to make sure there's no one fishing illegally there. Um, so we can we can set our boat somewhere offshore, fly this thing up and down the coastline and, and detect these boats fishing illegally. And if they're local boats, we don't even need to board them. So historically what you did, if you found, if you thought there might have been a boat fishing illegally, you kind of had to go and board them. And for a prosecution to stand up, you need to have video of them fishing illegally, GPS coordinates, a timestamp, and an insignia mark on the ship registration or identified mark or something. Um, so you needed to get all that, but you basically had to board the boat to, to gather all that, or at least get very, very close to it. With what the UAV does, we just film them covertly, so they don't, don't even know we've been filmed. And that allows us, we might target a particular area, film it over a week or two-week period, and gather the evidence of a whole, a whole series of boats that might be mm -hmm. fishing illegally. Or it might be the same, you know, sometimes we get the same boat coming back night after night, so they might sort of fish in the day in an illegal area, and then they come in and start trawling or longlining in a very protected area in the night. In the night, and so it takes away that argument where they might say, "Oh, it was just a one-off. We didn't realise we were in there." Um, yeah, if you yeah. gather evidence over over a number of days, it, it builds a greater case for the prosecution, sort of thing. So, so part of our work is is protecting marine reserves, and and we're in partnership with Manai on that. So they put a couple of rangers on board the boat. The rangers have jurisdiction, so I don't have the power to arrest anyone. I don't carry firearms, none of my guys do, but the rangers do that. And so if, if they make the decision to board a boat, we launch our rib, we go up and intercept the vessel, climb aboard and, and get whatever evidence, maybe the boat gets impounded. We'll often take the captain on our ship and bring them back. So if you take the captain on your ship, it takes away the risk of the of the boat trying to get away or, or something like that. Um, so that's part of our work. Um, and then the other side is terrestrial, where... We, we do patrols in the jungle. So we have a Belgian Malinois dog that's um, yeah. 
Yeah. Still, still a little bit in training, but he's a, he's a super awesome dog. So his name's Upper, A-P-P-A, um, which is off some kids' movie or something. I don't quite know what it is. But anyway, his name's I Upper. Think, I think it's from uh, uh, the animated TV series Avatar. Yeah, that's it. That's the one. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, we've got this dog called Upper. So he's a Belgian Malinois, which is one of the most physical dogs there is. Like this dog is super high energy. Really hard working. So once you put him tracking, he's really hard working. He will run for you till his paws bleed. Like he's a, he's an extremely capable dog. Got a very good nose on him. Very clever. And so he's been trained. He was trained by a Texas guy who's who trains police dogs on tracking. And he's also been trained a little bit on apprehension and sort of how to how to hold people. But that's that's a little bit risky. Um, and at the moment, we haven't really been trained up on that. So at the moment, we're just using them for tracking in the jungle. And so, and when you when you're in the jungle here, um, there's two two main targets for us. One is illegal miners, so people who mine illegally in the jungle. They tend to be in one location. Like they go and they take in some pumps and tools and equipment or whatever. They'll pick and an area of creek bed. What so are they they're mining? mining for? They're mining for gold. And okay. Corcovado National Park, where the bulk of our work is on this. Um, historically, there's been a lot of a lot of gold pulled out of there, and there's significant amounts of gold remain. But it's a national park, the, and the the thing with the miners, a lot of people say, oh, you know, they're just just making a living kind of thing. But they they often use cyanide uh, and mercury to separate the gold from the silt. Um, they cause significant erosion. But the worst thing is they generally they they live off the wildlife, so they'll take in a couple of guns, yeah. and at night they go spotlighting and shoot pickery and agouti and and uh, little deer and things, things that are, for example, the food for jaguar. Like Corcovado has, still has quite a large number of jaguar left, but all of their food is getting killed off. And that pushes the jaguar to eat smaller animals. And then there's, you know, those go getting hit. And, and so there's this sort of double whammy from miners is, is they go targeting the wildlife and that forces your apex predators like jaguar and puma to move a bit further down the food chain sort of thing. So anyway, we one of the things that we target is gold mines, but they are in a fixed location. So for example, we can fly the UAV over, detect where these illegal mines might be through turbidity in the water. So if they're mining, they use a lot of water and they're separating the silt from the gold. If it's the dry season like we have at the moment, there's this discoloration of the water that gradually gets less as it gets downstream and mixes with other creek beds and rivers and stuff. And so those are easier for us to target. And generally on those cases, the dog is used more as like a, what I call a squirter patrol. So when you come in on a mine, we might have a team of six rangers, for example. You try and sort of surround them as best you can, but there's always a squirter. Somebody squirts out the side or the side or whatever. So the dog gives us an ability to chase those people down. Secondly, the dog has a tendency to, to make people less likely to go squirting out the side because – you know, if you, suddenly you're facing, let's say you're, you're doing something naughty and you're faced with a couple of rangers, the temptation is to run off. But if you see this ugly dog looking at you and snarling, you're like, you are not going to, you know, you're not going to yeah. outrun a dog. And, and it also stops the likelihood of anyone pulling a firearm, pulling out a machete or doing something a little bit crazy. So it does make the operation a little bit safer. The third thing is it, it increases the awareness of the rangers. So sometimes you're just hiking through the jungle and you suddenly stumble over a miner, the dog gives you awareness that there's someone up ahead. Like he will start giving you signals. And as you get closer, the signals from the dog changes. So you, you have much greater awareness that there's someone just around this corner. So you can you can set up an IP or you might go around the back of him to pincer him or it, it gives you options to know there's someone just around this corner. 
Um, so anyway, that's 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 on the mining side. The poacher side, they are hard to catch here. They're really hard. And and the reason is that they're just hiking all the time. Um, you know, a mine, we know where they are. We run surveillance, you know, get some get some shots from the Shebel UAV, and we'll then we'll form formulate a plan with the rangers on how to go targeting that location. Poachers, they're just wandering and they're only in for a day or two and they're gone. Sometimes they set up camp at night. We might see that camp from our UAV. We might see, get a little signature on the fire and the thermal imager. But next day they're gone. Next day they're, they're out of there. Um, and so the, the poachers are really hard to catch, but they have a big signature for the dog to follow. So, for example, if you're hiking through a jungle, you're losing pieces of skin. You're losing little bits of fluff off your clothing that has the detergents that you're in. So the, the smell that's coming off a, a person is quite complex. It's a range of different smells. But in addition now, most of the hunters here, because the wildlife has been reduced, they hunt with dogs, which gives them a greater chance of catching things. And especially animals like the pickery, um, which is really targeted here, um, you hunt them with dogs, but the dogs have a big signature. So now our dog is trying to follow this guy, but hang on, there's all the smell of these dogs all over the place. So it's much easier for the dog to go tracking that very strong um, scent signature. Yeah. And so we can run these guys down. Um, and so the, the the dog gives us a real ability to, to catch people that otherwise might have gotten away. And it's still early days on this program. Like, you know, we've only we've only really just finished training on the dog and we're running patrols. We've got, I think, a three-day patrol coming up next week, which will be, which will be quite cool. Um, now, these miners, as you said, they're easy to find because they're right there. Are, are, are they aware of you doing this? They know where you are and that you're trying to stop them? Yeah. Look, one of the things here, look, we don't want people, we don't want to catch people. We want to stop the mining. And we, when we were doing training with the dog, we deliberately went to areas where there's nine miners to live. And generally the miners, they live in close proximity to Corcovado. So we would go and train with the dog right on their, right on their doorstep. And, the, and there's the, the, the Manai are going to run a media campaign coming up. So, you know, like if you guys go hunting in the jungle or, or go one in the jungle, there's a much greater chance of you getting caught now. So part of this is, is trying, to, trying to make the miners rethink is this the right career move for me to be doing is yeah. mining illegally in this place? Yeah. Well, and we've had conversations with conservationists and there always seems to be two sides of the conversation. It's the tackling the people doing the environmental destruction, the poaching, the gold mining, the illegal fishing. And then there's the other side of it of trying to kill the market that they sell at. And whether it's public awareness that, you know, those shark fins are actually destroying the shark ecosystems and the oceans or the gold you're buying may not actually be. And gold, like you've said, is incredibly hard to track. It. It, it's actually impossible to know where it origin is because of the ore and the mine or the uh, refining process. Yeah. And that's something yeah that I really want to discuss, because I think that Westerners, Americans, where that's the, our biggest audience for this show, uh, we're we all know that we're not really contributing in any significant way to, to shark fin soup or rhino horns or the ivory, but gold. Gold, I think, um, Pete, as we talked about before the show, is a different story. Um, can you get into that? Yeah, look, the as Westerners, we, we consume more than 
pretty much anyone on earth. And, and if you go looking, taking precious metals, so gold, silver, platinum, palladium, nickel, these things are all in, in significant percentages in our, in our cell phones, in our plasma screens, in our electronics, and in our charging stations. All of these th things go using precious metals. And the metals are often mined illegally, and especially gold. Like gold is mined all through the Amazon. So you go buying, a, let's say, a, um, a, a set of earbuds that has a little gold connector for when you plug it into charge. That little bit of gold has come from somewhere, and very often it's come from somewhere illegally. And, you know, a lot of people say to me, you know, what, what can I do to, you know, reduce my footprint on the planet? And generally, the, you know, the first thing I say is you need to think more about what you eat. So eat less meat, eat less dairy, and, and eat locally and things like that. Second thing is have less kids. That doesn't go down very well with a lot of people. What are you telling me to have, have less kids? <laughs> I should only have one or two. And, and you know, the, the, the idea that, that someone has a right to tell you you shouldn't have three kids, like it's, we think of it as a fundamental human right. If I want to have five kids, I certainly have the ability to father five kids. Is it good for the planet? Definitely not. And so, but to try and make people think like that is very hard. The third thing I say to people is consume less shit. And, and, and right across the board, you know, these days we, you know, people use things for six months or a year or two years. I go to things like these toys they used to give away at McDonald's, some shitty little bit of plastic that is, that is used for a couple of weeks and then chucked out or some little blow up thing that gets used in a swimming pool. It pops after a week because it was made in a shitty way and, you know, buy less of that shit. You know, if you really want to have fun with your kids, go and get a couple. Oh, sorry about that. Oh, good. <laughs> if you want to have fun with your kids, go down, go down to the supermarket and get a couple of big boxes and build a playhouse kind of thing. Well, there's lots of ways you can entertain your kids without buying them crap that is going to end up in a, in a rubbish bin in a few weeks. Gold, platinum, palladium, all of these things are in the consumer things that we consume. And we are part of the problem with the sheer volume of that that we consume. And most of these companies that are buying all this stuff, they don't do due diligence on where has this platinum come from. Uh, and very often they're mined in, in toxic ways and very often they're mined illegally. So we're, we're part of the problem. But making that connection between my cell phone and illegal mining in the Amazon is very hard for people to grasp. And there's this thought that, oh, well, the problem's the Amazonians who are mining it. Well, you know, if you stop the demand for it, you, you can address it, you know? Yeah. One of the things that, and this is a movie that I, I think it was in the early 2000s with Leonardo DiCaprio, and it was The Blood Diamonds. And it, I think most Westerners are familiar with what blood diamonds are. And I think there's a social connection with that or social injustices associated with blood diamonds. But I think with some of the stuff with the gold mining, the illegal poaching, some of that is also not just environmental injustices, but social injustices, and they seem to be. Yeah, absolutely. Together. Yeah, blood diamonds. In fact, that was um, I think that was produced by Participant Media, who was the they were also um, owned Pivot, which is our TV network, and they've done some amazing movies over the years that have really helped to highlight significant issues in terms of human rights and also environmental issues and that movie blood diamonds you know that, that kind of touched on both sides like the environmental degradation but also you know effectively these are slaves yeah. that, are, that are mining for these things and often those industries uh, go hand in hand like you know people smuggling weapon smuggling uh illegal mining um wildlife trafficking very often the, the supply chain they used to go moving 
illegal mine products is the same that might be used to go smuggling people, uh, smuggling wildlife and smuggling illegally mined gold or platinum or whatever it is. So as we wrap up the conversation here, I, I think Bob and I want to ask you, how can individuals that are listening to this either join your campaign financially or physically? The, one of the most interesting things for us is to get um, volunteers on our ship and especially volunteers that have, have some skills to offer. I do take, like at the moment, for example, I've got two 19-year-old kids on the boat. 90-year-old kids, man, they know nothing. But you put a kid on there, you know, they think they know lots, but you put them on there. And, and our ship is a great environment for people to learn lots of stuff. So they might learn how to do cement, how, how hydraulics work, how pneumatics work, 12, 24 volts, single phase, three phase, two phase, electricity, all of these things. You know, a ship is a very complex piece of equipment that has all these different moving parts. So I, I normally will take two 19-year-old kids and I put them on there for three months and they get immersed in a culture that works hard, um, that, that has the odd bit of playtime and gets to enjoy these amazing places that we're in. They learn a, new, a, a bunch of new skills and, a, and they learn about, you know, being immersed in a bunch of conservationists, how we can reduce our footprint. So I do take some people who are largely unskilled, but at the same time, I need a few skills on the boat, especially engineering, marine skills, social media, administration, um, so we, we take a range of volunteers on the boat, typically for a three month period. Okay. Um, and you know, videographer, photographer, um, it's, all it's those things now. are quite, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it seems like, it seems like every high school kid knows how to do that because they're posting on social media several times a day. Yeah. 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 And some of them, some of them have, a, have an awesome personality on TV. You know, you see someone who's 55 like myself. And they're like, oh, hi, uh, yeah, just here, Costa Rica. <laughs> and then you put a, put a 19-year-old on there. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So how, how do they actually join, though? Is there an email? Is there a submittal through your website? What, what should people do? So the our website is earthrace.net. And uh, they go on there. There's a page on there about the Costa Rica campaign. There's a page on there about volunteering. That kind of goes through the skills that we're looking for. Um, it's funny. I was, I was talking the other day with one of, one of, one of my new recruits. And I explained that the things we look for, one is you want, you want attitude, people who have a good attitude, hardworking, don't mind getting up early, maybe do a bit of, happy to come and train with us in the morning. You go up putting people in the jungle, you need to be fit. Um, so people who have a good attitude, then I want competence. And this is, this is harder to pick. You know, a lot of people might have a good attitude in, doing, in terms of doing stuff, but they're incapable of carrying out sometimes quite basic tasks and sometimes very complex tasks. So I, I really value competence, people who can, who can get shit done. And then the third element of that is, is a skill set. And not all, all people who join my boat have an existing skill set, but um, somebody comes on board who's already you know, a competent photographer, videographer, engineer, all those kind of things. So um, go through the website, earthrace.net, go to the volunteers page, the Costa Rica campaign page, have a look through. And there's, there's tons of information on there, videos from past campaigns and and a few bits from the television show and bits about the boat. Living on a boat, it's not everyone's cup of tea. You've got, you know, 15 <laughs> or 20 people all living on this yeah. tight environment. It's not everyone likes it. If you love your personal space, <laughs> a ship is not for you. I don't know how many people haven't really had a As lot of personal aside, space. I'll, just, I'll tell you what happened in the last couple of weeks. Suddenly my crew has stopped wearing pants. So everyone has walked around in their fucking <laughs> undies. I saw and that on your Facebook page. <laughs> 
through. And then ran one of my crew's like, Pete, it means we don't need to wash our shorts. All I've got to do is wash my wash my undies in the evening and I'm good to go for the next day. And I thought, oh. What and a conservation. Yesterday, <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, and then yesterday, so we suddenly we had these visitors on the boat. So there's a there's a, a dolphin watch thing here that often brings people out to our ship and they come for a tour through the boat. Here's my crew wandering around the undies. And there's some, <laughs> a couple of visitors going through the ship. Anyway. <laughs> That's great. And now probably what's happened now is everyone's been scared off me. I'm not I'm not joining that MODOC crew. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> And and if people wanted to just uh, donate and contribute in a financial way, can they also do that through your website? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's okay. a there's a donate page on there. In fact, I'm still paying off my hospital bill. I got a hospital bill of thirty two thousand dollars for my snake bite. What? If you go in to Costa website, Rica? Yeah, thirty two grand. I was like, I was stunned. I expected it to be. I thought it was going to be about ten to twelve grand or something. Like about a grand a day is often a, a sort of rule of thumb for places like this, but um, you end up 32 grand. So we've, I think wow. we've raised about 22. So I've still got 10 or 12 grand remaining on that. So anyway, go to the website. There's a donate button on there. Click donate and be generous. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's the the costly anti-venom. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I'm, I'm not complaining about it. Like they, they did a great job of fixing me up. And, uh, I, you know, I had one of the world's preeminent experts on, on snakes advising on the thing and, I'm, I'm not complaining about hospital service, mate. I'm still alive and happy to yeah. be here. Yeah. Yeah. You got to send us some photos of those uh, nasty leg pictures. <laughs> yeah, we have one. He sent one that he's in the hospital bed. And I didn't realize that that's what it was from until you told the story because I saw all the holes in your leg. <laughs> I was like, well, that's... Hey, mate. Well, I, funny thing was, when I, when I first got to the hospital, I was in this morphine-induced stupor and... Morphine tends to, like, it. you don't feel the pain. And also, it makes you a little bit kind of happy. So I'm just, ah, ah. But in, in those first sort of three or four days were like this blur. And then they took me off the morphine and put me on another drug. And then I remember looking down, holy fuck, look at my leg. Like, it was like, you know, one leg's like this fat and thigh, and the other one is like this. I was like, holy shit, what the hell happened to me? And it was, and it was suddenly I was all depressed. After that, looking at my leg, and that was when I was very close. To, so if your leg gets too big, the pressure in there, I mean, you run the risk of losing the leg. So they, they go and cut down the sides to relief, release that pressure. Wow. But then, you know, this is a significant operation. You're in a hospital with all sorts of crazy bacteria running around, and now you've got a leg that's been cut right open down the side sort of thing. So uh, I was horrified when I came out of that morphine ship. I saw how fat my leg had become. Um, and I got very close to them having actually cut open the leg and, you know, thank goodness they, they didn't have to do that in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am grateful f- for that too. Cause I don't think we'd be having a conversation with you right now. <laughs> well, no, I'd still be an hospital mate. If yeah. done that, eh? mm-hmm. All right. Uh, th- thank you. Thank you for taking the time to come on today. Before we let you go though, we typically do a quick rapid fire round where we ask a bunch of questions. Uh, it's the same 12 questions sure. to every guest. Every guest sure, this, this could ones. go either way, guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we do it. Uh, do you want me to get started, Elliot? Yes. Sure. All right. Uh, Pete, uh, what is the first word that comes to your mind when you think of the word travel? Travel. Blueprint. Hey, uh, that's the first right. right there. It is. Uh, what home comfort, and home is subjective here, what home comfort do you miss the most while traveling? Showers. Hot shower. What if is it? Could- a hot shower. A hot shower. Got it. 
If, if you could swim in so any I've liquid. I've got a funny accent going on here. Yeah, I hadn't noticed. <laughs> if you could swim in any liquid, what would it be? Mercury. Oh, that's a first. Mm. You're going to be bouncing on top of it. Mercury's so heavy. I don't know. You wouldn't want the chemicals going through your bloodstream. So you might want to wear some kind of light suit. It's going to look a bit weird, but you're going to be sitting right on top of it. It's going to be, quite, be pretty cool. Quite freaky. Yeah. Mm. Um, would you rather drink wine or coffee for the rest of your life? Mm, wine. Say hello in your favorite language. Kia What is that? Which is, which is Māori. Okay. Māori, who are the indigenous people of New Zealand? Jack. I remember him from the show. All right. If you can travel with anyone in the world, living or dead, who would it be? David Attenborough. I'd probably be wheeling the poor guy around in a wheelchair. You know, poor guy's 90-something, 94 now, I think. Oh, man. Yeah. One, of the, one of the greatest conservationists of all time. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I, I, in fact, it would probably be a shame to, to waste the last six months of his life traveling around with me or whatever <laughs> it is, but enormous respect for David Annenberg. And, um, you know, he's done a huge amount for conservation around the world, especially nice. in recent times too. Yeah. I would love to be a fly on the wall with you two having a conversation on conservation between the two of you. His show, just to go on a very quick tangent, is incredible. He has a new show on Netflix, and Pete, towards the end of it, he actually gets into why we should decrease population and things like that. When it, you know, In your spare time in the Costa Rican jungle, if you ever get around to watching his new, his new documentary, um, it, is, it was really good. Yeah, I've seen, seen it already. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, and he, he always sets the bar with him. I've got a, a cameraman I had once. He, were, he was filming with him in, in a jungle somewhere, and they, they were doing a shot with a, with a snake. And he said how they, the guy went out and they produced three different steel um, rods for handling the snake. And David was like, no, no, that won't do. I'll go and get something. He wanders off in the jungle, comes out with, comes out with this little stick. He said, this is much better. He said he was, a, he, was, he was one of the most professional guys that he's ever filmed with. Um, wow. Anyway, I didn't want to use a piece of steel, wanted to use a stick and went and got it. Yeah. Uh, where are we? Uh, is it my turn? Yes. Um, what is one item remaining on your bucket list? Oh, that's a tricky one. One item remaining on the bucket list. I want to build Earth Race 2, which is a 60 meter boat that I need to raise about 15 million for. Okay. That sounds All easy. Right. Right. <laughs> Sounds easy. Well, all right. all right. Before we get into number eight, I do want to ask, you've done a lot of financing or at least requesting financiers for some of your endeavors. Is that harder than the actual oper operations? Yeah, it's the hardest part. You, you, you speak to most conservationists or most people doing humanitarian work and those things. Funding is the hardest part. And there's that dilemma. Like at the moment, you know, I want to raise 10 or 15 million to build this amazing boat that we can do some super awesome work with. Do I spend my time fundraising? Do I spend my time running missions and saving wildlife? Or how do I try and balance those two? And all conservationists go through the same thing. Okay. All right. All right. So number eight here. This is a fun one. If you could pick an actor to play you in a movie, who would it be? <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, that's a good one. But, there was um they they did um there was a guy bought the movie rights to my book Whale Warrior, and the guy they they were thinking of using and the movie will never go anywhere I don't think because it's, it's already told whales but they were thinking of using Hugh Jackman, 
which is overly Ooh. complimentary to me. I think just some bald, skinny white guy, to be honest. But anyway. <laughs> well, who, who, you know who I think might be good? Who is, uh, what the heck is his name? He's, oh, Jason Statham. I can see, oh yeah, I can kind of yeah, see I mean, a little resemblance there. There's a resemblance. <laughs> yeah. If he went on a diet for six months and lost all his muscle mass, he'd be most suitable. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Bob. Uh, where are we? Number here? nine. Okay. Uh, if you were stuck in one city for the rest of your life, which city would you choose? Mm, which city would I choose? Probably the capital of Palau. Palau is this little island. It's a U.S. protectorate. It's between. It's sort of, it's about, it's southeast of Guam. Okay. Uh, I can't even remember the name of the capital, but it's this beautiful little tropical island, one of the best diving places in the world. Everything works because it's US protectorate. Uh, it's got, um, things here are relatively cheap. Um, and I often get asked if you were to take your family to your favorite holiday location, where would you go? Palau, is it? Sounds like a... Palau, a, I'm going to have to check that is out. It, oh, is that... That was a major uh, World War II battle, I think. Yeah, like, absolutely. Like, yeah, like there's, a, the there's bloodiest... a huge number of shipwrecks all around. There's yeah. a whole lot of Japanese boats. There's a few American boats who all got sunk. If you're a wreck diver, that is one of the best places yeah. in the world to go. Another that... one is um, is Chuk or Truck Lagoon, depending on what language you're reading. And that's kind of halfway across the Pacific. That's another place. That was where... So in Pearl Harbor... Um, America lost, I don't know the number of ships, 60 or 80 ships, or a huge number of ships got blown up Pearl Harbor. America basically did the same to Japan a month or two later, where all the Japanese ships were in this, in this um, truck lagoon and flew over there with planes and blew them all up. So truck lagoon is another place that has a huge number of dive wrecks. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that at all. Yeah, I'm going to have really, to look into that. That was a very bloody battle. Yeah, that was in, uh, they, they highlighted that in the show, The Pacific. Okay. Which followed. Yeah, those were dark days back then. You know, thank you know, thank God society has partially moved on from that mm. sort of nonsense. And not that we don't have problems these days yeah, with Afghanistan yeah. and Iraq and the rest of it. But you know, going back, looking at World War One, look and World War Two, how horrific they were. You know, thank God we don't have world wars going on anymore. Yeah, agreed. Very much agreed. Well, this question now seems yeah, <laughs> uh, not insignificant. But if you owned a yacht, what would you name it? <laughs> I owned a yacht. What would I name it? Probably Earth Race 2. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> I was waiting for that answer. And then, and then here's the very last question. What is one piece of advice you'd give to yourself 10 years ago? Mm, don't be afraid. It's a, yeah. I think we, you know, these days we... We're often fearful of failure. We should we should be fearful of doing nothing, really. Yeah. Mm, that is Wise words. Advice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Pete, I really appreciate your time. Uh, both times now. Uh, we, you know, you're a busy guy, and so thank you for joining us. Thank you for explaining what it is you do. Um, it's been. It's oh, been pleasure, mate. Like I appreciate you guys giving you know giving me your time on this and. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't take my my time on on your show for granted. I'm glad you guys gave me the uh, the effort here, and, and much appreciated. Yeah, and before well, we we'll go to Palau one day when you get a chance. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and have uh, less kids as well. Yeah, All right, uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, do you have Do you have a social media handle for yourself and for Earthrace that people can follow you? Yeah, so we're on the usual platforms. If you look up Pete Bethune. 
or uh, Bethune, B-E-T-H-U-N-E, or, or follow Earth Race. Either of those, you'll, you'll track, track us down, all right? All right, yeah. wonderful. Thank you again. All right, guys. Thanks, Heaps. We need people like Pete to push the envelope of conservation. You know, they need to go outside of this realm of comfort, comfortability and fight for the environment. It, it needs to get this extreme. Because if it doesn't, the extremists who are destroying it will win. You need to kind of fight extremism with extremism, right? And I think that's kind of where Pete started his exploration, right? He mm-hmm. he saw that there were laws in place that were fairly unjust through whaling, through other means. And so he wanted yeah. to take it upon himself and his team to go outside of the realm of the law, which wouldn't allow this interaction to take place, this form of conservation to take place. And now we I mean, he even said that he is transitioning. He knows he has a family and he knows he wants to be more active in the conservation world, but he wants to do it within the boundary lines. And he's pushing legislation. He's pushing politicians. He's pushing rule makers to make all of these changes to help better protect the world that we live in. Yeah. 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 Incredible, incredible guy. Um, and if you're listening to this and you want to join him, you now know that you can. He needs the help. And uh, if you just prove listen- you're valuable. Yeah, yeah. And good luck. Uh, what, a, what an incredible thing he's doing. All right. Uh, if you if you want to contribute to the podcast, you can do so in a financial way for as little as $1 a month, less than a cup of coffee a month. You could do that through our Patreon page and you can find that through our website. If you want to contribute in a non-financial way, you can just subscribe to the podcast. You can like it and you could leave us a review on iTunes, probably the best way to help us grow. Um, If you don't want to do any of those things and you just want to keep listening, we also really appreciate you still. And just thank you. Thank you for being a fan. Thank you for listening to us talk about travel over the years and continue to tune in. Thank you.